This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queen's College, and I'm on Twitter at JN Cohen. I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. I'm on Twitter at, at Gabriel Rossman. I'm Leslie Hankson. I'm at Georgetown University, and I am not on Twitter. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Deliberately. <laughs> so if you happen to be what will undoubtedly be our only listener and you want to leave us a comment or anything, you can tweet us or uh, we've set up a show page. It's at theannexpodcast.com. That's the Annex Podcast. Someone beat us to uh, annexpodcast.com. Go figure. Uh, yeah. So, Gabriel Leslie, this is our first episode. Do you want to christen the podcast with uh, a few opening words? Leslie? Um, yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about where the name comes from, and you all can sort of chime in. Uh, the annex is a nod to our old watering hole, uh, Princeton, uh, grad school days. And we thought it was appropriate, both because of, you know, sort of the good times vibe, um, but also because, you know, an annex is an extension or an addition um, to a building uh, or to something else. And I like to think of this as an extension or an addition to academic sociology. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and I, I just want to add that we're going to shoot for the same standard of mediocrity met by the food at the annex, where everything tasted like the worst Thanksgiving dinner you ever had. <laughs> it had grease, so I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't go wrong with yingling and fried cauliflower. Although, actually, you can, because at a certain point, they added little bits of American cheese to the fried cauliflower, which was disgusting. Uh... But like just just to show how much I've aged since grad school, I listen to this and I think, wow, that'd give me a lot of heartburn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so banter, banter. Uh, I guess we're. I don't know if we're supposed to declare the start of banter. Or we're supposed to stimulate some kind of spontaneity as if we were meeting each other by chance at the. Well, at our age, you have to schedule it or it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. So what? What's new? What's new? Who wants to? Who wants to go? You know, I'll jump in. I'm the way I'm approaching banter this this time around is thinking about it as sort of like dinner party chat. And uh, I want to talk about Taylor Swift. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about Taylor Swift. Uh, all three of us um, have girls, uh-huh. and uh, two of my girls um, are within that demographic, that age group that I think of as being Taylor Swift's uh, base. And yet neither one has been excited about the release of this new album. So is Taylor Swift losing it? If so, why? And, 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 and you know, what, is this, what, is, what are the ramifications for sociology? <laughs> Do you want to go first or shall I? Well, yeah, it's funny. I hadn't really thought about it. But, um, you know, I didn't especially care about the new album and neither did my daughter. But she was really into the last one. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it, I feel kind of weird in the sense that, like, when I hear one of her old songs on like country radio or something like that, it feels like it was a million years ago. Yeah, like, it's like uh, this. It's weird to think that the person, it's the same person who was like this, you know, pop country but still country singer songwriter who wrote her own stuff, who is now for a few years now been this like sweet pop uh, superstar. And it's just a bizarre thing to think about that it's the same person in the same career. I know. Well, for me, number one, I like Taylor Swift a lot more than my daughters do. <laughs> <laughs> I love that album. It was good, 
I'm old enough and secure enough in my manlyhood to just be like, <laughs> I really enjoyed that album. Uh, your daughters and my daughters, like, so my daughters are the eight to ten set, which I would think is more of Taylor Swift's target demographic than your girls, which are a little older, right? Yeah, fourteen and eighteen. Yeah, they're already cool and stuff. Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Gabriel's probably more attuned to. Well, my daughter's my daughter's ten also, and she just hasn't asked about it. I mean, she has to listen to uh, Casey Musgraves and um, Florence and the Machine and stuff like that all the time, but she has no interest. I don't think she even knows that there's a new Taylor Swift album. You know what's weird? It's also like maybe the concept of waiting for an album is a very much a signal of our age because now, <laughs> yeah. now kids they get uh, they get their song suggestions from at least my kids from prediction engines like from either from peers like a song catches on and everybody hears through it, but also they get to like songs through like algorithms that are tailored to like their families, their personal listening history and like the stuff I've crammed down their throats. Maybe an album is a dated concept. Well, that's how I learn about music. So like, you know, I learn about music because they show up in the filtering algorithm from Pandora or Amazon Prime radio stations or something like that. Although I, I feel like Pandora, I mean, I listen to Amazon now because there's no commercials without having to subscribe. Um, whereas on Pandora there are, but they, the Pandora algorithm's much better. Whereas my daughter, I don't think she uses any of that. Um, a hundred percent of her cultural taste is based on YouTube. Yeah. Like anything she's interested in is because, you know, there's two 22 year olds standing in front of a webcam talking about it. No, seriously. And, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, one of the videos dropped already from the album mm -hmm. and it was interesting. You know, there's a nod to zombies you know, there's lots of bling. There's also, um, I don't know, uh, choreography and um, and garb that's very reminiscent of earlier Beyonce videos. Um, and I don't know, I, just, I, I, you know, in the interest of sociology and social research, I actually surveyed um, my my 14 year old daughter and and some of her friends you know small n but whatever and you know they just seemed like as a whole just turned off by what they've heard and seen so far maybe maybe quality comes like that the album that she made was great but like which maybe, album are you talking about the new one or the uh the new one. Oh, or, no, she's talking about the release of the new one yeah and what I'm saying is maybe 1989 was great and it sort of filtered through the culture and the kids will come to appreciate it once everybody's listened to it, if it does have that breakthrough quality. And this, you know, maybe maybe it, it feels like a very corporate, uh, feels like a very corporate release and they're just not into okay. it. Okay, well, well, that's interesting yeah. too, right? Because that's what I was saying earlier is that she's gone with the current album, presumably in the 1989 and to a very large extent with Red. Um, that was all sweet pop, and it, it was like you had this person who wrote songs and was a good singer-songwriter, but it's just a change in the culture. Um, I read a good book about this about a year ago. Uh, John Seabrook, um, who's a writer at The New Yorker, wrote a book called The Song Machine, where he talks about the rise of sweet pop and how the, kind of the sweet pop model of this very highly produced uh, genre of pop music is taking over uh, popular music and there's a decline in singer-songwriter type stuff. And it's really about the producer much more than the uh, performer. Hmm. 
Yeah, but Taylor Swift is also the producer in many ways, isn't she? That's what's interesting. You know, like for me, I actually, I actually think a lot of it has to do with my girls thinking, you know, she's not nice anymore. And maybe it's because she's growing up and maybe that's, she's a casualty of her own brand. So maybe the authenticity. So uh, should we move on? Or? Yeah. All right, Gabe, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. So uh, mine's a little different in that it's it's much more, uh, you know, prepared and everything. So I'm go I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant. So <laughs> in, in preparation for teaching um, 210A, I'm sorry, for teaching the intro stats course yet again, um, we mostly teach in Stata here at UCLA. But, um, you know, there's certain purposes for which R is useful. And so I want to support R for the students who are interested in it and will eventually get it. And so I've been reacquainting it myself with R. And every time I reacquaint myself with R, um, I remember why and how intensely I despise the language. <laughs> um, and so I made a list, and I oh, want to go over all the things. But I'm, I want to make clear that I'm not going to talk about the things about R that I don't like that are kind of intrinsic features that it's got to have. So it's like I recognize that there's certain things you got to have as an object-oriented language. I'm not going to complain about, oh, you got to assign things to objects. Because, because the trick is, is that might fool me if I didn't also know Python. Right, right, right. And Python is also an object-oriented language, but it's not infuriating like R is. Okay. Um, anyway, and because I have so many, I'm going to make a little ding after each one so that you guys okay. can keep track. Okay. Okay. okay, okay. So the first thing I despise about it is there's a tutorial culture that doesn't represent a realistic workflow. Every R book or MOOC I've ever read or taken spends the first few hours on stuff like vectors, matrices, and frames before showing you basic workflow things like loading a file from disk and getting summary statistics for the variables. If our tutorial culture was Rick James, it would be stomping its muddy boots on your couch shutting fuck your learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> Documentation culture that doesn't represent a realistic workflow. The examples and manual entries are more likely to start with a bunch of colons and commas than read dot table parentheses. Uh, documentation culture that doesn't show output, just a script. If I could get it to work, I wouldn't be reading the documentation. Knowing what I should be looking for would be really helpful. <laughs> And in general, <laughs> a mentality, uh, it, not even just in the documentation, but in the functions themselves of output, we don't need no output. We don't have to show you any stinking output. <laughs> <laughs> the default assumptions are awful. Every single time I loop over a bunch of file paths or URLs, I cry to the heavens in anguish that paste parenthesis defaults to interpolating a bunch of spaces unless you explicitly tell it that there should be no separator. Aww. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, you never done that with the paste function, where you know. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Camel case versus <laughs> underscore versus dot, and there's no way of telling which one is going to be used, and so you end up getting confused between them. Uh, the default functions are uniformly awful, and everyone knows it, which is why there's a library that replaces every fucking function in BaseR that runs faster <laughs> and with a simpler syntax, and people are shocked that you would run a for loop like in any other language instead of vectorizing. Yeah. RStudio encourages you to save session memory, which in turn encourages really bad habits for reproducibility. Okay. CRAN is such a pain to deal with for developers that they end up posting their code to GitHub rather than maintaining it on CRAN which means that it's a pain for users to install, especially if there's dependencies. Keeping your R libraries working is like using Linux in 1995. I got so pissed <laughs> off at this uh, for a particular library that I gave up on maintaining that project in R and learned Python just to maintain the project rather yeah. than trying to maintain uh, you know, the Sisyphean task of maintaining the fucking libraries in R. 
Even when you call output, the default output is ridiculous. When I look at a model fit object, I wonder, where the fuck are the standard errors? <laughs> I know this is why you do the summary of the LM object, not the LM object itself. But that's an extra step to get meaningful output, and it's yet another example of bad default assumptions that yields gratuitous hostility to the user. Okay, now, Joe, I imagine you have a lot of feelings about that. All right, yeah, well, I wish, I, I, you know what? I was thinking of one, and then you got to the other. Some of them were a little complex, and I have to look at them again. So yeah. a couple things. These are the notes that I have. Number one is, uh, you know, I assign a lot of O'Reilly books. Like, I don't really care for uh, on, the, on the textbooks and the mm -hmm. documentation. So on one hand, there is some good stuff. I feel like O'Reilly is very hands-on and walk-through, and uh, I like it, and it's cheap. And I feel like there's, there is a lot of good books out there. They just might not be made for statistics for social sciences. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like all of them start with the assumption of your understanding the language as a language, not your understanding it as part of your statistics workflow. And that's why yeah. they start with vectors versus matrices versus frames instead it. of here's how to load the data into memory. I feel like I've, well, whatever it is, maybe I'll find some books because, I mean, I, I've gone through a bunch because, you know, when you start a thing, you do that bonanza of desk, ordering desk copies. Yeah. And it gets, uh, so, I, I don't know, I would say. Now, with the documentation, you're totally right. And with this, the, the thing is, is the documentation is the best part of Stata. As like a Stata, mm -hmm. who's, Stata person who's moved to R. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, But you kind of don't need documentation. It's sort of like Stack Overflow. <laughs> you know, yeah. you just, Google is your documentation. I saw a great tweet on Twitter that I think I retweeted, which is like, how to learn R. It's like, install, install R, install R Studio, then Google, how do I do that thing that I want to do in R? Enter. And just repeat that, uh, you know, forever. But that's exactly my problem, right? Is yeah. that it, that works really well once you get past a certain point on the learning curve. Yeah. Like that can take you from a level of basic familiarity to a level of intermediate to a level of advanced. But yeah. it, precisely because you look up the, let's say that you're a new R user, you've just installed it, and you're trying to figure out how do I do a linear regression. You Google that and you'll find, you know, something saying like, well, you do LN and you, I'm sorry, LM and you assign it to an object and then you wrap it in summary. But they're not doing it on an actual data set. They're doing it on, you know, a couple of normal distributions that are generated as vectors and concatenated and that sort of thing. Right. Well, so, so, okay. yeah, yeah, I have nothing to say for this segment. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I'm the, I'm the R user with training wheels. Stata is good to me and has been, and it's good enough. Okay, well, <laughs> we've also gone kind of long on this segment, so I should probably, we should probably wrap it up. But I just want to say, I wrote down Markdown, and I don't even know what I meant to say there. And well, Shane with, just got that in Stata 15. Yeah, I know, but Markdown, I mean, there was something about workflow and output and stuff like that. I forget. Mm -hmm. But I wrote Markdown, but obviously that's inadequate because I don't know what I was going to say. And then with <laughs> I the LM object. Yeah, yeah, well, I think we'll definitely yeah. cut that. And then uh, with the LM objects, you know what? We'll just, we got to move on because I don't even remember what I was going to say. I love your list, but like, yeah. we'll have to continue this. I'll have to do a response banter. Yeah. So. Uh, all right, so I'll tell you what. I just want to. I'll give a very quick reflection, and we'll we'll uh, we'll have a. There was a few things that I wanted to talk about. One of them was uh, about that essay that I read on Scatterplot. Do you guys, you guys ever read Scatterplot about uh, yeah. legacy at Harvard and how mm -hmm. uh, you know? Did you anybody catch that? The 
legacy at Harvard. I've seen uh, people both. talking about this, that it was based on a yeah. recent Crimson study. Yeah, something, and there's a kerfuffle. And here's my question. As a Canadian, like, <laughs> I feel you guys very, very much, like, you. there's a big American fetish with these, like, tippity-top schools and who gets in, who doesn't get in, whatever. And I think it's I think it's nuts. Uh, I I don't know, but like, what's your feeling on legacy? Does it make you mad? Do you feel like it's a real problem? Do you feel well, like? Well, before you get to that, um, I, I think that it's really interesting that you preface this as basically as a Canadian, because uh, like Ramey and Ramey have this great paper called the Rugrat Race, mm-hmm. where they um, they look at you know what have been the broader effects of incredibly competitive college admissions in the United States. And one of their major pieces of evidence is they compare the U.S. to Canada because, you know, according to them, and I think you probably agree with this, um, you know, McGill and Toronto might be considered the best, but not by a wide margin. Nah. Anybody you know? can get in anywhere if you're half decent. Okay, well, there you go, right? So it's it, there's not that, like, kind of intense stratification of schools that, like, characterize the entire first three seasons of Gilmore Girls. Um, <laughs> you know that you see in the united states yeah Um, well you know i actually i the thing is i also think there's this added element of of this fetishization of certain Mm -hmm. brands of schools right Mm -hmm. that you don't see as much that is i think oftentimes kind of divorced from the actual quality of the education so i don't know i feel like it's the kid as a college professor no matter where I've been, and I've taught at all sorts of levels, when a kid comes in who's just, you know, terrific, you know, you're not gonna, this kid's already gonna do great things on their own, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Regardless of where they go. Yeah. Like, they're gonna accomplish, they can accomplish great things. And then, I guess there's sort of that middling, whatever, nondescript group, but I don't know how much they get out of being somewhere elite versus not. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I I don't know. I don't know. So one of the questions you asked is whether the legacy thing makes me upset, right? And you know what? It doesn't make me upset, except when people then turn around and talk about affirmative action, right? Which, number one, we as a society actually have no real idea how affirmative action works, right? And we assume that certain types of people are the beneficiaries always of Uh affirmative action, whereas we know exactly how legacy works. So just saying. Well, but that actually is context, right? Is that um, the the interest in legacy came up specifically because affirmative action was in the news again, Uh, particularly, Mm -hmm. I believe it was with the Justice Department uh, joining the plaintiffs of uh, there were like some Asian American plaintiffs who were suing some mm-hmm. of the big schools for not getting in. Yeah, I thought it was because of the New Yorker piece, uh, shout, the shouts and murmurs piece about uh, Kushner and his and his uh, his his admissions essay to get into Harvard. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen. Uh, that. I don't know. No, All I, I know is that. when I hear that George Bush was a C student at Yale, I'm thinking he must have been really b- a bad student. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's been great inflation since then, but yeah, in, in general, that's true. That, um, and, you know, colleges are really different, including elite colleges are really different than in the 60s. I mean, the fact is, is that the size of the freshman class at all these schools has been roughly stable over time. And the sheer size of the cohort of 18-year-olds um, has been increasing a lot. 
And so just that sheer fact is going to make these schools much more competitive and the kind of politics surrounding it more contentious. You know what? We'll follow this up another day, but like, I'm very curious about like what you, it's one thing in the abstract. And then there's a question of like, what are you going to advise your kids to do? Like, I'm just shipping my kids back to Canada. That's my plan. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll save it for another time. Yeah, I'll give you advice based on my adventures in college admissions. So. All right. Okay. Well, so, all right. Well, let's move on and uh, let's uh, start with our first segment of what I'm reading. That's where one of us talks about something interesting that we've read recently. And uh, first up in the series, Gabriel Rossman. Gabriel, what have you been reading? So a few months ago, I read Dover's uh, masterful 1978 book, Greek Homosexuality. Um, it's just a really impressive work of scholarship. Um, I don't do philology. I basically only speak English. And, you know, and I have no patience for reading text closely and that sort of thing. But I really admire what classical philologists and source critics and that sort of people do. It's just Wait, a can, very... Can, can you yeah. explain what a philologist is? Oh, it's a fancy word for a classicist. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it technically means like close reading. So, like, technically, Nietzsche started out as a philologist, for instance. So reading old texts closely, interpreting them together. Exactly. Okay. So, um, it, it's just this really impressive work of scholarship, and he goes through all sorts of data uh, from the ancient world, and he looks at philosophy, especially things like the Symposion. Uh, he looks at the old comedy of Aristophanes. He looks at various uh, legal cases like the prosecution of Timarcos, and he looks at uh, he gets an enormous amount of data from this insane level of detail, w looking at vase paintings, uh, specifically pornographic vase paintings. And it's not just all the sources, but like the level of details he uses and the inferences he makes on those details that are impressive. Wait, so, can I just stop you? Did you say yeah. pornographic face paintings? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think face paintings would be preserved in the archaeological record. Okay. Face painting. Pottery. Oh, I see. All right. Yeah, yeah. Vase, vases. Yeah, vases, Joe. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yes. sure there was pornographic face paintings. <laughs> Vase? Okay. I was like, what's yeah. going on? All right, sorry. Yeah. Go on, go on. My bad. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so uh, it, it's the use, the details, and the uh, interpretation of some of this data that's also really impressive. So, for instance, one way that he'll um, infer what sorts of behaviors or activities or statuses were considered shameful is he'll go through legal speeches and he'll find cases where somebody's just rattling off this list of uh, and uh, legal cases and comedies and things like that, and see a case where somebody's just rattling off a list of insults like Captain Haddock and Tintin comics. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody would say, you're a patricide, you're a thief, you're a buggerer, you know, that would imply that being a buggerer is a bad thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Although actually that's a little bit misleading because it wouldn't be a buggerer, it would be a buggery that would be a bad thing in this context as I'll talk about later. And then he has this almost absurd level of detail and he measures the angle of penetration in vase paintings. So he goes uh, through all this pornographic pottery and he precisely measures the angles at which the bodies are meeting to infer what exactly was going on in their nether regions. Um, and, you know, basically where things were going. Um, and it's just like such detail. He, he does this with like hundreds of um, pieces of pornographic pottery. I'm trying to avoid saying vase. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. so, so that's all just like, what are the methods? But, you know, you don't read a book just for the methods, although they are impressive. Um, 
the, the, what's the upshot of the book? Um, it, well, first of all, the upshot of the book is that the title is misleading, right? The title is Greek homosexuality, but it's really about pederasty in 4th century BC Athens. Mm-hmm. And one of the main themes of the book is that the very concept of homosexuality is anachronistic. This notion we have that your sexuality is defined by to whom are you attractive, uh, excuse me, to whom are you attracted, and that um, this is kind of a persistent part of your identity throughout your lifetime. Uh-huh. Uh, that wasn't really a big deal for the Greeks. They kind of understood that some people had lifelong predispositions, but they way downplayed it. It, it like wasn't a salient. It was something they understood, but something that wasn't salient. Um, instead, their notion of sexuality was based on uh, life course, not permanent. Like your sexuality was almost a part of your life course that at a certain age you would do this, and then at a certain other age you would do that, and then at another age you do the third thing. And in particular, as a when you were in your late teens, you would be. Um, I, I'm, I might butcher the Greek terms, and in fact, I, I was pronouncing this word wrong until I heard a uh, a uh, BBC Four in Our Time podcast where they pronounce it. I'm like, oh, I said that word wrong all this time. <laughs> anyway, uh, so in your Late teens, you would be an aromanos, which means a bottom. Mm-hmm. Okay. In your twenties, um, basically, you would be an erastes, which means a top. And then um, around, and then you know, maybe concurrently with being erastes, maybe a little bit later, you would be you would get married and uh, have a heterosexual relationship with your wife. Um, so effectively, sexuality was a life course, right? Where when you're young, you would uh, be a bottom. When you're kind of a little bit older than that, you'd be a top, and then when you were, uh, you know, fully mature, you would be uh, uh, straight by our standards. And in fact, they define these things based on things like whether you had a full beard or not. And for a man to have a full beard and be a bottom was considered really shameful and ridiculous, <laughs> right? It's, it's like this idea that, like, it would only be appropriate to uh, serve a subordinate sexual role. Wait, oh, so it was like you're... an enforced status. Like oh, yeah. you, you had to stay within your life course. Uh, yeah, you had, you had to do things that were age appropriate. So there you... was deviance, but it was... Oh, absolutely. Like... And, and in fact, yeah, so this, this notion that like the Greeks, uh, or particularly the Athenians, were totally fine with homosexuality is not true. So, and, and our culture is much more tolerant of homosexuality in that sense. Now, there's a way in which they were more of a gay society than we were in the sense that it was almost a compulsory part of at least upper class male life course socialization. That at a certain age, you know, you were kind of expected to participate in homosexuality, um, which is not true of our culture, right? We, we expect a minority of people to do it, but we also expect them to go ahead and do it their whole lives, and we don't really care what role they take within it. Um, <clears throat> Wait, you're expected to participate, or you're expected to sort of, by our modern terms, be exploited? Uh, if you're, if, if, yeah, if, see, but they didn't take it that way, right? Right, right. Um, it, it, yeah. So, it, yeah, in in our, yeah, so in our terms, uh, we would see this as um, statutory rape, um, because these were generally, you know, boys who were 16, 17. Maybe like they're not being ratified in any way. Right. Well, that's also interesting, too, right? And that the top was expected to have lust for the bottom, but the bottom was only expected to have um, admiration and um, chaste love for the top and was supposed to submit sexually to the top, basically to do a favor, but wasn't expected to have 
um, any form of lust towards the top. Um, it sounds like it, some of, that sounds like some of the memoirs I've read about uh, life in British boarding schools. Well, yeah, that's right, too. So um, it's interesting that, you know, life course homosexuality is something you see come up in a lot of different societies where, and in particular, whenever you see a society that puts an extremely strong value on female chastity, um, you tend to see a people resorting to life course homosexuality where basically older boys, but still too young to be married, will penetrate younger boys. Um, but then once they're old enough to get married, they get married. Um, but you don't, as a rule, have younger boys penetrating older boys in, say, British boarding schools. Um, and that doesn't necessarily happen that much anymore in British boarding schools because the British no longer have a strong cult of female chastity. But you do see it in other places. Um, the Zulu Empire had a similar sense of life course chastity where men weren't allowed to get married until middle age. And so they had this kind of... Um, you know, gradated homosexuality until then. And you see it in modern Pakistan. Um, I've seen surveys of modern Pakistan, working class men, working class young men in modern Pakistan showing that a majority of them have uh, engaged in life course homosexuality, which is interesting because we think of Pakistan as extraordinarily homophobic culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So I have a question about that, right? Yeah. Because, you know, in thinking about American society, um, mm -hmm. I would say, like in reflecting uh, historically in American society, I actually think that there we also put a huge premium on female chastity, and yet we don't have this uh, tradition of um, of life course homosexuality for men. So, what's the difference? Is it the class component? Well, I I. We define huge, right? I mean, we put some premium on. We're not like some type of, you know, fantasy written by Margaret Mead or something like that. <laughs> but compared to Saudi Arabia or ancient Athens, and if you want an idea of what gender roles, like male-female relations, were like in ancient Athens, you should basically think Saudi Arabia. Women were sequestered in the household compound mm -hmm. uh, all day and were only allowed to leave for religious reasons, um, and were supposed to be kind of kept away from non-kinsmen. So, um, like I said, basically Saudi gender roles. So it's like, yeah, we do have something of a sexual double standard, but it's it would be unthinkable to us that a woman wouldn't be able to have a respectable marriage because she wasn't a virgin mm. at her first marriage. Yeah. And it would be unthinkable to us that, um, you know, a family would kill their daughter because, you know, we, we don't have that kind of extraordinary cult of female chastity that you see um, in a lot of historical cultures, especially Mediterranean cultures. It's like it's a minor form of deviance now. It's not even in a lot of families. I it's normal know. deviance, right? I mean, yeah. if you look at the GSS and you ask people, uh, do you approve of premarital sex? A majority will say they somewhat or strongly disapprove of premarital sex. Really? But if you look at um, the National Survey of Family Growth and you ask you know, all sorts of detailed questions about sexuality, it's only a tiny minority of American women that were virgins at their first marriage. Yeah. But that, but that's today, right? Like I'm thinking back, you know, the, you know, the 17th and 18th, well, more the 18th century in America. Oh, sure, that's true. And there was, um, or the or the 19th century, there was a mm -hmm. Victorian cult of female chastity. And yep. in fact, I was thinking about that earlier, and that the the relationship between the Aromanos and the Erastes reminds me a little bit of Victorian sex roles, and that a man was expected to win the love of a woman and then she was supposed to submit to him sexually 
but she wasn't really expected to have, there wasn't really a concept of female lust, mm -hmm. it, you know, in Victorian sexuality. It didn't mean it didn't exist, but they, it wasn't culturally salient. And this is kind of the same understanding that um, the Athenians had of um, the lust of the Arases versus the chaste admiration of the Aromenos. And in fact, it was somewhat shameful if the Aromenos was, was understood to have lust for the Erastes as yeah. compared to just admiration. So when did hetero and, I, I know nothing about sexuality, when did hetero and homosexuality sort of become sort of firm, sort of across the life cycle identities? When did that transition take place? Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but really recently. We, well, you know, we, it, we, need, we need to get an expert on, uh, on the history of sexuality to come in and uh, talk to us. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, th th that would definitely be cool, like some type of social historian or something like that. But I know it's recent, and I know that like if you go... Now, and there's a lot of periods where um, they might not necessarily draw a strong distinction between the top and the bottom, but they still would... You know, and so and that's a, or they wouldn't see it necessarily. They would see it as something you did rather than something you were. Mm -hmm. um, but this notion that we have of it only matters with whom you have sex, and um, you know, and it, and it doesn't matter especially what you do with them. It only matters with whom, um, and that this is a permanent part of your identity is. I, I think it might even be twentieth century, but like you said, we'd have to ask an expert. I, I have one more question. What's the what's the payoff of the angle analysis? Oh, so that's interesting. Okay, so uh, first of all, let me back up a little and say that um, what was highly salient to them, and this has kind of already been implied, was not with whom you did it, but what role did you take. Hmm. And so it wasn't um, were you gay versus straight. Like we think of that, that's your sexuality, right? If, if I say, what's your sexuality, you'd say straight. Um, but their, their, their sexuality is more about the role. What role did you take? And this had to do with the general logic that totally pervaded antiquity, that everything was about domination, yeah. right? I mean, this, these are cultures that are completely characterized by patron-client relationships. And, um, you know, whereas we don't really think that way, we like things to be egalitarian and equal. But in these cultures, they saw things as there, there was always a top, part to a partner and a bottom part to a partnership of any kind, not, not even a sexual one necessarily. So it was all about domination. And so what, and this is one reason why you had the age grading, is that for a, a man to penetrate someone in the ancient world was understood as the person being penetrated as accepting a subordinate status below that man. Now. For a woman to be penetrated in the ancient world made perfect sense because women were understood in the ancient world to be lower than men, so it was natural that they'd be sexually dominated by them. But when you get into men penetrating other men, then you have a problem because it implies that there's not an equality among the men. And different ancient cultures solved this in different ways. The Athenians solved it by you could only penetrate a younger man. And because, and in particular, a man who hadn't fully reached manhood because he didn't have a full beard yet. And but, uh, whereas the Romans had a, a, an even stricter notion where they had the idea that you couldn't penetrate a free citizen for any reason, no matter how old they were, that the, that uh, no free citizen was supposed to be penetrated. Um, but the but 
and this is in keeping with the um, this notion that you see in both Greece and Rome that sexuality was about domination. In fact, there's a famous poem uh, called Catullus Number no. 16, the first line of which translates basically as, I'll fuck you in the ass and make you suck my dick. Um, <laughs> well, there goes our G rating. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, so the payoff with the angles is what exactly are they doing in these things? Because he's trying to figure out what sex acts were they doing. Now, you might think that if you see two men who are obviously having sex and, you know, um, their genitals are in rough proximity, then it's anal penetration. But there were there are forms of sexuality, there's forms of sexual intercourse that are known in some cultures and aren't really known in others. So, for instance, fellatio is very common in our culture, but it's not that common in many other cultures. Um, 18th century French prostitutes refused to perform fellatio. They thought it was disgusting. Whereas in our culture, it's it's not really that big a deal. Um, and in fact, you know, it's, it's very commonly seen as like a less intimate act than uh, vaginal intercourse. So, but an act that you see in a lot of cultures that you don't really see in our culture is what's sometimes called intercural uh, penetration, which is mm -hmm. basically um, sex with the thigh gap. Oh, okay. So um, he's looking at the angles and trying to figure out, were they having sex with the thigh gap or were they engaging in an uh -huh. anal penetration? And, um, and what he finds is that in the vase paintings, the vase paintings almost exclusively show thigh gap penetration between men, whereas between men and women, they usually show anal intercourse. So it's and the more the thigh, is the thigh gap like the more tasteful option for the exactly. living thing? And what's interesting <laughs> about that is that the you have to understand in context what this pornographic pottery was for, and that a lot of um, this pederasty occurred in the context of symposia, which were all male drink well almost all male drinking parties, although they'd have um, courtesans at them. Um, so uh, at this you know a all male drinking party, you would have your younger lover. And you might have a courtesan there, and then you'd drink each other under the table, that sort of thing. And a lot of the Greek pottery that we find was purpose-made for these types of dinner parties. And um, so, and it was common, in particular, for a type of pottery called a kylix, which just looks like a bowl with handles, but they use it as a drinking cup. Mm -hmm. That at the bottom of the kylix, there would be a pornographic cartoon. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that you're at this elite socialization uh, drinking party with your younger lovers and when you finish the drink you can see the cartoon at the bottom nah. and so you would want it to be erotic but relatively tasteful <laughs> in contrast um he goes through aristophanes and he finds that aristophanes makes all sorts of jokes about anal sex uh -huh. and my favorite of those is that he um he talks about there's a dung beetle um and they talk about how the dung beetle should have the best food. And so they say that it, that this dung beetle is very picky in its taste. And so they say that the dung beetle only eats the food uh, from a aromanos because it wants its food well churned. Well, that, that would not be the case if it was intercural penetration, right? And then, um, and then they talk in particular about how the, um, the dung beetle really makes it to the big time when it gets to eat the... Um, the the excrement of Ganymede, who was the younger lover of Zeus, huh. you know. So, 
it's this interesting thing in that depending on which source you look at, you see either anal intercourse, intercural, you know, in the case of um, the very vulgar comedy of Aristophanes, you see um, intercural penetration in this pornographic pottery. And in Plato, there's basically no sex at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plato talks about homosexuality, but he sublimates it into kind of this unfulfilled desire. So depending on how elite and sophisticated you were, you would um, be more or less discreet about what exactly was going on. Nice. This is a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good uh, segment there, Gabe. Well, it's a good book. Oh, it's a really good segment. <laughs> nice. Any, any final thought, Leslie? Anything no, thought? like my, my final thought is, you know, his take on, uh, on female homosexuality and, you know, so that's an interesting question, right? The, the book is mostly about male homosexuality. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit about heterosexuality and a little bit about um, female homosexuality. Um, so briefly on heterosexuality, he describes the heterosexuality as uh, really misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you see um, uh, heterosexual pornographic cartoons... Uh, there's very often a notion of domination. Many of them de- clearly depict what we would understand as rape. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, there might be a guy holding a club, like, threatening to uh, beat a woman if she doesn't go down on him. And, in fact, that's also another difference in that the heterosexual pornographic pottery shows fellatio, uh, mm-hmm. whereas there's basically no homosexual fellatio in the pornographic pottery, which has to do with the, you know, the Aromanos might be lower than the Erastes, but not that much lower. So they couldn't do something truly degrading, mm-hmm. as the Greeks saw it. Um, and then in terms of what did it say about uh, female homosexuality, um, it wasn't as big a deal as male homosexuality was, although most of our sources are biased towards men. Yeah. Um, but we do have some evidence for it. So... Um, I forgot what the Greek word is like, ellipsos or olibosos or something like that, but it means Lesbos? dildo. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Well, that's interesting too, right? But there's a word that uh, it's like O-L-I-B-S-O-S or something like that. Anyway, it means dildo. Mm. And um, so there's various pieces of ancient Greek art that depict women either alone or together um, using these dildos. Hmm. Um, they, the notions of female sexuality in ancient Greece were a little bit muddled. And we, you know, obviously our term for a female homosexual is etymologically derived from the island of Lesbos, um, largely because Sappho, the poet, lived there. Mm-hmm. You know, who was a female poet, and some of her love poems describe the love of a woman for another woman, and in particular the lust of a, a woman for another woman. Um, but that wasn't really the Greek uh, notion of uh, lesbians. They didn't associate lesbians necessarily with uh, homosexuality, Greek hom- uh, with, uh, excuse me, female homosexuality. Their association of lesbians, if anything, was that they were um, good at fellatio. Hmm. But that kind of got tied together with a notion of these were women who were down for anything. And that in general, it, it was kind of like I mean, this may be a little bit extreme, but the, the, the image you get in Dover, um, he, he doesn't put it this crudely, um, but the, he, it kind of implies that the Greek understanding of women from the island of Lesbos, with the, they were nasty and down for anything, 
mm-hmm. that would normally be taboo or mildly taboo. And, you know, so it would include both um, fellatio and uh, female homosexuality. So there was a notion of kind of hypersexuality among women from the island of Lesbos, um, rather than distinctly a notion of them as um, uh, female homosexuals. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, all right. So, uh, the next segment we uh, were talking last week about some research that uh, I recently caught uh, in the Seattle Times. I'll uh, put a link on our on our show page, and uh, features the work of Kate Starbird. She's uh, an assistant professor in the again this the, the Department of Human Centered Design and Engineering, and she specializes in crisis informatics. Isn't that a great specialty? Yeah. yeah. What what a cool niche, eh? It makes it's it sound like, like an earthquake's going on, and you have to like file up your terminal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it's, first of all, it sounds eminently fundable. Crisis informatics. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tip my head, but also okay, it wait, wait, Joe, cool. Joe, yeah. it, it could be more fundable if the word health was in there. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We could we could cram a few extra words in there, but I I don't even know if health would help. Like this is like. Uh, this is probably like DOD funding, which is probably just through the roof, right? Yeah. yeah. A sociologist would never even catch a whiff of. Oh, but, I know two sociologists with large DOD grants. No. Oh, I'll have to, have to chat, get the get the, the tools of their trade. Anyhow, anyhow. so the uh, Seattle Times talks about her project. I thought I'd just very briefly go uh, over it. Should I? or? Yeah. All right, all right. Okay, so uh, this was sort of my take on, on what she wrote. So we often think about news sources as uh, lying on a left-wing to right-wing spectrum, right? So there's like MSNBC, CNN, HuffPo, maybe the New York Times on one side. And then on the other side, there's Breitbart, Fox News, InfoWars, the National View, maybe like the Wall Street Journal on the other end. What this uh, researcher, Kate Starbird, does is uh, she takes a look at the development of uh, politically motivated rumors. And uh, she, she, she did sort of a, a Twitter content analysis, quantified it, and then used network analysis to see, you know, which communities uh, developed around uh, which information sources in propagating, uh, fall, you know, conspiracy theories. And anyhow, the, I, what I read to be sort of the kicker or the hook was that she proposes there's like a a two-dimensional typology or in a, a, a different dimension from which we could view politics. So there's the left versus right. Uh, but then what she finds is that a lot of what's going on in the, uh, let's say the alt-right is very similar. Uh, it, it's also going on in the alt-left. There's like a lot of conspiracy theories on both sides. And what she argues is that one of the big differences between the alt-left and the alt-right versus what would be the mainstream uh, view is a, a strong anti-globalization type of sentiment. And that makes sense. You know, you got a lot of, or you see the alt-right against foreign influences, and you also see some strong left-wing counterparts who are quite isolationist in terms of like laissez-faire globalization. And what she argues uh, is that uh, these anti-global factions, they might be, I, I got the sense that she was arguing they strategically deploy conspiracy theories as a way of marshalling support. So there's like a, a cynical, there might be a cynical acceptance among people who are involved in these conspiracy theories where they're propagating it. And 
I got the sense that uh, I don't know whether or not they believe it or not, the degree to which they believe it, but she, I read her as suggesting that uh, there's more to these conspiracy theories than people genuinely believing that something's going on. Like there's an agenda, there's a definable agenda. That's what I saw. Did you guys get that or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely did get that, right? And so part, so I think there are kind of two parts to that argument, right? So the first is, you know, why this anti-globalism agenda, right? Is that really the, is that really like kind of like the independent variable here, right? Or is, is, is it, is there some kind of intervening variable that's doing the work, right? Or is it the intervening variable? How much of this is class related? Well, probably a lot. I think a lot of people, first, I think a lot of people blame globalization uh, on uh, their diminished job fortunes. And mm -hmm. who knows, maybe those who are at the very bottom of the, the income scale do, you know, you can make a rational case that, you know, they, they, they really do blame globalization and it's an outgrowth of their, you know, economic frustrations or their need to scapegoat someone because they're, you know, they're having a bad time economically. Yeah. So the reason why I ask that is I actually think that, you know, I, I think that there's a that that there is a segment of the population that when you identify someone as being anti-global or anti-globalization, you think of those people as being unsophisticated. Right. And not cosmopolitan. And um, and I, I think that that's not necessarily the case. Right. You know, there's no reason to think of anti-global uh, being anti-globalization as being, you know, anti-world, uh, you know, maybe what we're seeing as being anti-globalization is really just a, you know, I'm actually pro, pro me. I'm pro, you know, being a class for itself, right? You know, I'm pro trying to protect a group of people who feels as though they haven't been protected very well, so... Yeah, and I think what you guys are picking up on is that a lot of this is essentially populist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one strong way to be populist is to be anti-globalist. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine someone who's, like, staunchly populist and wants more global integration. <laughs> well, what, you know what I'm thinking about, though, when I read it? You know, like, you know those people who listen to Alex Jones or Infowars? Are they enjoying, are they believing this stuff? Or are they enjoying Alex Jones the way somebody would uh, enjoy pro wrestling, mm -hmm. right? Like it's a spectacle that we all know to be fake and the people are actually listening to it are enjoying it like pro wrestling. And then you have all these sort of who they would see to be East Coast liberal elites thinking that they actually think like that. And like the joke is on us that we think that they're taking it seriously. The concept I've heard to refer to this sort of thing is a symbolic belief. Yeah. Where it's not something that you really believe is actually true, but it's something that you, like, it could be an empirical claim. And it's, you know, grammatically phrased as if it were a factual claim about what the facts are of the universe. Hmm. But people don't really parse it that way. They parse, they parse it more as, I am claiming to believe this because it reflects my loyalties, it reflects my interests, it reflects my principles. So, you know, if you asked somebody a few years ago, do you think that President Obama was born in the United States? They, they might not necessarily parse that as a factual claim of, do you think the birth announcement, the birth certificate, and all the 
other mountains of evidence were forged. You know, they might phrase it, they might interpret it effectively as, do you like this guy? Do you think he's really one of us? Mm. Which is kind of a different question. And so when someone adopts, you know, the complete lunacy of birtherism, they're not necessarily saying they actually believe that there's, you know, was this fake birth certificate, faith birth announcement, et cetera, et cetera. They could actually be saying that um, they just don't like the guy and they don't think he represents American values and that sort of thing. And similarly, when you see people, uh, you know, forwarding, you know, stuff from Luis Mensch, mm-hmm. who's this crazy conspiracy theorist on the left now who, you know, every few days she comes up with some lunatic thing saying that, you know, Trump is about to be impeached and, you know, tried for capital treason at the Supreme Court. You know, and it, it sounds like the kind of thing that a bunch of uh, nine-year-olds would make up at summer camp. Um, <laughs> when people talk about that sort of thing, I don't think they actually believe that, you know, the Supreme Court actually conducts capital tr- uh, trials for treason and that for some reason it's getting leaked to Louise Mensch. I think they just see this as a way to express that they can't stand the son of a bitch. So it's like an implicit declaration of allegiance in under the guise of professing to believe something is true. Yeah, it's a little bit like religion, right? I mean, some people who practice religion actually believe every last bit of the creedal statement. Mm. And some people, you know, profess to believe parts of the creedal statement because it, you know, it's a representation of their values, but they don't necessarily literally believe it. Yeah, so there's a spectrum. And so how do you how how do you start parsing out, right? If you're conducting this kind of research, how do you start parsing out the true believers from the symbolic believers, if you will? Well, the guys who show up at the pizza parlor with an AR-15. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the easy. <laughs> that's the uh, easy way. Well, with Alex Jones, I... Uh... I was watching this John Oliver segment where apparently he has a very large merchandising operation. So yeah. you could ask listeners, have you ever purchased his water treatment to get rid of that chemical that makes squirrels gay? Or like, uh, <laughs> have you bought any of these products? Buy the gas mask that is supposed to defend you from the chemtrails. Well, some of those could be consistent with the kind of ironic pro wrestling. No, totally, so like, totally. Like everybody I know who owns a MAGA hat has it as a joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still registers as a sale, though, eh? It's interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And now, a word from Editor Bain. You think response memos are your ally, but you merely adopted R&Rs. I was born in them, molded by them. I didn't see a conditional acceptance until I was already a man. <laughs> and it was nothing to be but blinding. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was holding back. I, back. I didn't want to laugh over the track. I could yeah. silence myself. It was good. Yeah. Oh, but he's coming back next week, well, right? Well, he's a ruthless editor, right? I mean... <laughs> And it takes a supervillain to explain why journals are so broken. (laughs) I love Editor Bain. (laughs) So I guess that does it. Uh, You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Uh, Please comment on our show page, theannexpodcast.com. You can tweet me at JN Cohen. 
uh, Gabriel at Gabriel Rossman, or uh, you can leave a message for uh, Leslie after the beep. Beep! On... <laughs> Make sure you speak into your phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on behalf of Gabriel Rossman and Leslie Hinkson, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye.